The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, it's my privilege to lead us now in a time in the Word of God today. Together, if you have your Bible, wanted to turn to the book of Acts, I invite you to go there, Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking, we're continuing on in the book of Acts, we go section at a time. Today we're going to be looking at verses 12 to the end of the chapter, focusing in on really just the first three verses of this section. On the back of your bulletin, I put an outline there for you to follow if that's helpful. And also the title, Replacing Judas. And I'll let you turn there. While you're turning there, uh, the book of Acts is very exciting, especially the first part where a lot of amazing evangelism is going on, the work of the Lord, people being saved. So it's a very encouraging book. And in no doubt it'll motivate us as Christians to remind us of that priority of evangelism and speaking boldly for Christ wherever we go, praying for the salvation of those we know who, who are lost or don't know Christ yet. So we're going to find the book of Acts very encouraging. And in light of that, uh, just so you know, on the back of the table is a half sheet, uh, just a convenient half sheet on the basketball camp coming up, which is an evangelistic basketball camp so I encourage you to take those pass them out to as many children as you know seventh grade on down and for a week in june we will be focusing on the jesus christ and the gospel for for young kids it's just a wonderful evangelistic opportunity and praying for maybe 50 kids if god wanted to bless us with 100 that'd be awesome the more the better uh, so with that let's go to the book of acts i titled this replacing judas because that's really the theme verses 12 through 26, the last time we were in the book of Acts uh, was on Jesus' departure, has, how he ascended back into heaven to be with the Father where he came from before he was born of Mary and also where Jesus had lived, get this, eternally. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the Bible. He is uncreated. He's always existed, and he's always existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so last week in the book of Acts, we saw after his public ministry, after his death and resurrection, and after 40 days of encouraging his believers in a resurrection body, he was taken up into heaven by the angels. And the great promise is that he's going to return in like manner someday. And so as Christians, we literally are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical body to reign as King of Kings. So that's uh, the last incident that happened here in the book of Acts. And so we have left the 11 apostles and maybe some others standing by the Mount of Olives, just about a mile away from Jerusalem, that key city. And they just saw the Lord Jesus ascend. And then an angel told them uh, he's coming back again. And so immediately after that, the apostles are going to go back to Jerusalem where they have been waiting. And actually they have kind of a headquarters in the upper room. It's called the upper room. We don't know a whole lot about it. And the apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus, some of Jesus' siblings, and other faithful disciples have been regularly getting together in the upper room, spending a lot of time in fellowship prayer, and we're going to see the details of that. So that's the context of where we are today. And they're getting together, they're going to pray, and they're preparing for the coming of the Holy Spirit that will come 10 days after the ascension. On the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was predicted in the Old Testament, Joel and other places, uh, that begins the church, uh, an exciting new phase in the history of God's 
program. And so that's what we're looking forward to uh, that will be revealed in Acts chapter 2. Today I just want to look at the first point, and that's verses 12 through 14. Uh, point number one, we're not going to get to verses 2 to 4. I want to really zero in on the truth of verses 12 through 14. And the main truth I want to zero in on there is that it's a simple truth, that Jesus changes people. Jesus, he really does, radically. Uh, the world tries to do all kinds of things to change people, to modify behavior, to change personalities, to change upbringing, to make drastic changes. And they go to uh, great lengths to try to change people and behavior and bad habits and those kind of things. Uh, and the world comes up uh, short and actually totally incapable of changing a person. Literally on the inside, it is impossible because changing a person can't be done uh, at a human level. It can only be done supernaturally by the creator himself. He's the only one, and it takes a supernatural change to change a person. Uh, the world will resort to things like uh, medication, drugs, operations, uh, you name it. False religions to try to change people. But the Bible is clear. Only the Lord Jesus Christ changes people. Uh, what I mean by that is coming to know Jesus Christ personally, personally, intimately, uh, as a friend, but also as a savior. Knowing him personally as the creator and as the judge. That only comes through hearing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is, why he came, what he accomplished on behalf of sinners. And when a person comes to truly understand who Jesus is and why he came, and then they actually believe in that, and they recognize that they are sinful and they submit to the truth of Jesus Christ, who is God, and they ask to be saved by the Lord Jesus because they understand who he is, they understand that they're a sinner, then God saves them. God transforms them from the inside out. God supernaturally, spiritually changes them, and it affects everything else in their life. That's the only way that change can come. Jesus called this being born again. The Apostle Paul called this becoming a new creature, a new creation. The Bible also uses other words, a justification, where God pronounces you not guilty before God the judge. Actually, what's better than not guilty? God declares you innocent, spiritually, morally, before God the creator, being born again, becoming a Christian, it's also called being saved, being adopted into the family of God. These are all synonyms of the supernatural work that God does in a person to change them. And so actually today is baptism Sunday. So after this devotional, we have the privilege of baptizing five people here at GBF that are a part of our fellowship. And they're here to get baptized, not to get changed by Jesus, but to testify they've already been changed by Jesus because they came to understand the gospel, the good news about Jesus, what it meant, personally applying that and assimilating that truth into their own life, recognizing themselves as sinners, and then giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking for his forgiveness. And he changed them, and then they're going to be testifying through baptism, which is going to happen right up in this water tank up there, where they're going to get dunked or immersed in water. Immersed, that's what the word baptism Tizo or baptism means in the Bible. Jesus said, when you become a Christian, you need to get baptized. You get baptized in the name of the Trinity. 
as a sign that you have already been saved and changed by Almighty God through his gospel. So that's what baptism does, and it's, it is symbolic. Baptism means to get dunked or immersed. That's why they do it that way. Jesus also got immersed by John the Baptist, not for sin, but as an example and to fulfill all righteousness, he said. So they get immersed and dunked in water. Water consistently throughout the Bible from the beginning to end always symbolizes from God's point of view as a metaphor cleansing, supernatural cleansing, forgiveness of sin by God and his grace. So it's one of the reasons why they get baptized in water after becoming a Christian. There's also symbolism to getting dunked in water at baptism. And the picture is, is you have believed in Christ, so you died with Christ and you were buried with Christ. And like Christ, you come out a new person with new life, risen from the dead, spiritually speaking, born again. It's also a picture of literal bodily resurrection that is the inheritance of every believer someday. So that is the meaning of baptism. So a little later today, you'll understand the significance of it. These people are not getting baptized to get saved. They're not baptized to get forgiven of sin. They're not getting baptized so that God will love them more. They are already his children and in obedience they're doing baptism. Now, go to the text in Acts chapter 1. I want you to see some people that have also been supernaturally changed in amazing ways. Follow along as I read as they're at the Mount of Olives and now going to head back to Jerusalem. The apostles, after the ascension, verse 12 says, then they returned to Jerusalem. Why did they do that? Because Jesus said it when he rose again from the dead on the day of resurrection on Easter Sunday. He told Mary and his apostles, go and wait for me in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise. We saw it last week in the Gospel of John and other places that Jesus had been making this amazing promise to the apostles that upon my departure, the Father will send the promise. The promise is the coming Holy Spirit. And you need to wait in Jerusalem to receive the promise, the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that's what they need to do. To be obedient, they need to wait. They need to be patient and wait for the promise. And so they are obedient the 11 apostles. So they go right back to Jerusalem. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That just means about a mile. According to the Jews of that day, they weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so they even applied that sometimes to how far they could travel in a day. That's all that means. And in their day, that meant about a mile away. Verse 13, and when the apostles had entered the city of Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room, definite article. It's a specific room. It's a designated room. It's a reserved room. It's an important room. The upper room, not just any room. Where they were staying. So this was a place that they uh, may very well have been staying as a group of apostles and believers since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's very possible because we find them at occasions... They're together in a room, and the Lord Jesus keeps appearing to them to encourage them. This could be the same room. Could be the very same room, uh, upper room, where they had the Last Supper. Because the Gospels do refer to a specific room, and also later on in the book of Acts, we're going to see there was a room in someone's house that belonged to a woman named Mary, a Christian, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, where they used her house and a room there where the early church could gather on a regular basis, could very well be it's that same upper room. But anyway, it's a big room because this room had to accommodate. And it's an upper room. It's on the second story, which actually to this day in Israel, if you go there, they have 
upper rooms in Jerusalem, in Israel. And many times, upper rooms are specifically designed for special meetings and for privacy. Because if you're down on the first floor in Jerusalem where it's all tight quarters and clustered and claustrophobic and everybody's on each other's shoulder, if you're down on the bottom floor, there's not a whole lot of privacy and there's a lot of hustle and bustle going on, especially at times of feast where hundreds of thousands of people converge on the city. So it was typical for more wealthy people or richer people to have an upper room that elevated you away from the crowds. You've got more privacy, and they were bigger rooms where you would have special meetings and invite guests and have meals and those kind of things. So that was this kind of room, an upper room. And it had to be a larger room because it accommodated at least 12 apostles in addition to the siblings and the family members of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to say up to 120 people in this room. That is a large room. And this is in someone's home, probably. So they entered the city. They went up to the upper room where they were staying. They had been staying there on a regular basis, so which means they'd probably been staying there in ter- during the entire 40 days where Jesus kept appearing and reappearing. That was headquarters, which would become the first church. Well, who was staying there? Well, it was Peter and John. So Luke goes on and he actually lists... The apostles, pretty much in the same order that he had listed them earlier in his gospel when Jesus chose the 12 apostles. Jesus had many disciples. Those are learners or students. Not all the disciples were believers, we find. And out of a mass of disciples, Jesus prayed and selected 12 apostles, sent ones, out of those disciples. And in Luke, he named the 12 apostles, and here he names 11 of them. Judas, the scary is not named because he is not with them. So here are the apostles, Peter and John. Peter's always mentioned first in the five or so lists of the apostles because he was the leader of the apostles. He was the spokesperson. Uh, we see him saying much. His ministry is showcased in the book of Acts for the first 11 chapters. So there's Peter and John. John also, very close to Jesus. Significant pillar in the early church, said Paul. So you got Peter and John, James and Andrew. So those are the brothers of the brothers. James and John were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. That's the first four. Then you got Philip and Thomas. They're kind of in twos. Could very well be when Jesus sent them out two by two. It was kind of their ministry partner. Philip and Thomas, no longer no, known as Doubting Thomas. Jesus had appeared to him many times and encouraged him with convincing proofs that he was risen from the dead. Thomas has made progress. Bartholomew and Matthew. Matthew, known as Levi, also the former tax collector, the extortioner, the guy who used to steal money probably from people on a regular basis to pad his pockets. He's also been changed by coming to know Jesus Christ, by seeing the resurrected Christ. He's been transformed. No longer a thief, but a man of God. No longer a traitor of his country, Israel, working for the pagan Romans, but a lover of Jesus. Matthew changed by coming to know jesus christ then there was james the son of alpheus also known as james i think james the less james the small guy some people believe the short guy then there was simon the zealot this is different than simon peter simon the zealot uh he was a zealot by occupation it was a group that he affiliated with before he came to know christ there was a group of bandits who hated rome with a passion nationalists Jewish, their religion was Israel, and these zealots would band together 
with a very specific cause, and that was trying to undo and overthrow everything that Rome was trying to do, especially as they infiltrated with their paganism the holy land of Jerusalem and Israel. And so the zealots, the Jewish zealots, often would secretly, in clandestine fashion, overthrow the, the Romans and harass them and smash their idols that they brought into Jerusalem that was an absolute offense to God and his word. And unfortunately, sometimes they got overly violent with the Romans and maybe even sometimes were known for killing those who weren't Jewish, especially pagan Romans. Well, that was the background of Simon the Zealot and the Lord Jesus Christ changed and transformed him. He was no longer a rebel. He was no longer uh, a murderer if he was that at all. He no longer only loved just his sect of people. He loved all humanity and saw every human made in the image of God. He came to know Jesus Christ personally. Jesus Christ changed his life. As a zealot, the person that Simon the Zealot would despise the most would be a fellow Jew who was a traitor of the country who agreed to be employed with the Roman government to be a tax collector to steal money from the Jewish people, which would be Matthew or Levi. One of his very own fellow apostles. Can you imagine when Simon the Zealot joined the group by Jesus? Considered and thought, oh, that guy over there, he's a tax collector. I have to travel with him and lodge with him and share a table with him. And what a challenge for Simon the Zealot. Well, God's love and the good news changed Simon. Now he was one with Matthew or Levi. And then you finally got uh, Judas, the son of James. There were two Judases that were apostles. There was Judas Iscariot. He was of the devil. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. Uh, scriptures prophesied that. We're going to see more details about Judas next week. Judas, the son of James. Judas was a common name, like John would be maybe in our culture or just different names that are very common. It was a common name, Judas, quite close to Judah, which was the main tribe in Israel where Jesus would come from. So you can see the connection there of why it was common name so the apostles these are the 11 they're together throughout the gospels they're called the 12 the 12 the 12 or the 12 apostles that was a technical phrase the 12 there needed to be 12 by god's design there had to be 12 there were 12 tribes in the old testament and god used those 12 tribes to create an entire nation called the jews 12 tribes and the 12 tribes were by name they were allocated land or uh, plots of ground and responsible uh, specific duties they were responsible for. So there were 12 tribes in Israel as a nation. And so Jesus picks 12 apostles who will become the church. That was not coincidence. That was not accidental. That was purposeful to choose 12 apostles. 12 was a significant number. And that's why through the gospels, they are continued to be called the 12. Now they have 11. There needs to be 12. Jesus has already made a promise at the Last Supper in Luke 22 where he told the apostles that in the future, in the kingdom, there will be 12 thrones where you men will sit with me in glory. He already made the promise. There will be 12 thrones designated for the 12 apostles. Jesus made that promise before his death and resurrection. Now there are only 11 apostles. There needs to be a 12. God gave John the apostle a vision later in his life when he was probably in his 80s or 90s in the book of Revelation of heaven, of eternity, of the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem and its city and what it looked like and it's described with walls and foundations and 
part of the walls and the foundation, it says there are 12 names of the apostles that are etched in the new heavenly Jerusalem that will exist for all eternity. There has to be 12 apostles. They are different. They are special. They're called by God. Before Christ starts his church, he needs 12 apostles. That's going to lead up to next Sunday where Judas is replaced. Judas is replaced not just because he died, because there were apostles who died who didn't get replaced. As a matter of fact, all the 11 will eventually die. None of them will be replaced as apostles. None. There is no apostolic succession. Judas is going to be replaced primarily not because he died, but because he defected from the faith. And there needed to be 12, 12 faithful apostles who, in the words of the apostle Paul in Ephesians, will lay the foundation of the church and through whom God would give revelation and they would end up writing the New Testament that we have for us today. So there needs to be 12. So that's why Luke is so careful to point out there are only 11. Jesus has already promised in Luke 22, there needs to be 12. That 12th one is coming. That would not be the apostle Paul. He came five years later. He's not even saved yet. And Paul said, I'm not like the 12. I'm different. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Totally different. I'm not part of the 12. Verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So that's what they were doing for 40 days. What were the apostles and their friends doing for 40 days? Uh, much of that was given to prayer. They were devoted themselves to prayer along with the women. It wasn't just men. It included the women and one of the women specifically is Mary, the mother of Jesus, finally getting to see the fulfillment of these prophecies and promises that were made, finally coming to full fruition. Oh, now I understand why my son was born of a virgin. And all the prophecies that he fulfilled as the God-man. So Mary is with the apostles praying for 40 days, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on Pentecost. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, also was there. So you had the 11 apostles, Mary, several other women, and it says, with his brothers, Jesus' brothers. Jesus had half-brothers. Jesus was the first one born of Mary. He had no biological father. And then Mary and Joseph got married. And then they had uh, probably six more children at least that are named in the New Testament. Four of those are brothers of Jesus. They're mentioned in the Gospels by name. There was James. There was Joseph. There was Simon. And there was Judas. Four brothers Jesus had. They're also mentioned They're mentioned by name in Matthew 13, verse 55. During Jesus' public ministry, his four brothers, his younger siblings, they didn't believe him. He's going around saying he's the Messiah. They didn't believe him. His own brothers did not believe him. Division over religion in the immediate, immediate family. We have that even today. We have that in the testimony of some about to be baptized. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that in Mark... Chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus was out doing public ministry, declaring that he is the Messiah, even doing miracles, he calls his 12 apostles, and then he comes to his hometown, and the entire town converges near the house of where Jesus lived. There were so many people they couldn't even move. His entire family heard about it. Mary and his four brothers and his sisters, Jesus' sisters, heard about it. And they went to go get Jesus. And basically it said they wanted to go rescue Jesus or seize Jesus or literally arrest Jesus, his, sibling, his family. Why? Because Mark 3 says they thought he was out of his mind. His brothers. They thought Jesus was crazy. Then in John chapter 7... They verbalize that and say, Jesus, why don't you go uh, present yourself to your followers? 
And they were mocking him and being sarcastic. And it says in John 7, even his own brothers did not believe in him. They were doubters. They were mockers. They were cynical. Calling him insane. Who knows if they were even in the crowd screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him. We don't know that. But his siblings weren't believers. And then Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ made a special appearance to his unbelieving brother, James. And James was transformed, broken, and became a believer and really becomes the leader of the New Testament church. Absolutely awesome. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts. And James goes on to write this beautiful book in our Bible called the book of James. Jude who mocked Jesus and made fun of him as one of the younger brothers, he got saved and God used him to write the book of Jude in the New Testament. God changed his life. And no doubt, God probably changed the lives of the two other brothers as well because they're here praying with the apostles and the other people. Luke goes on to tell us that there are 120 people in this gathering in the upper room. Absolutely amazing. Getting to know Jesus, getting to know his gospel, understanding that he is God, that he is sinless, that he came for a purpose to die on the cross as the substitute of sin, to be punished by God the Father for sinners, to be buried, to raise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. Jesus did that purposefully to save sinners so that they can be adopted into the family of God. And when a person believes that, the the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior that he's the only one who can adopt a person into the family of God. He's the only one that can provide forgiveness of sin. When a person believes that, they are changed, transformed, and they become a Christian, born again, just like the examples that we saw right here in the book of Acts. And so now we have the privilege uh, to hear the testimonies of some of our very own who have been changed by this great news from Jesus Christ. So Jennifer is going to be our first one to come on up. Uh, Jennifer G., I got to meet her in the last few months. Actually, the last, yeah, I met her a few months ago. I think GCM was the first time I got to meet Jennifer. Jennifer G., if the last name sounds familiar, it's because her cousin is Jessica, formerly known as G, Jessica G., who's now Jessica Kwong. And Jennifer is going to read her testimony. So, hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer. I was raised in a family of unbelievers, so I didn't know much about Christianity growing up. I learned a little bit about Christianity in high school, but wasn't sincerely interested, so eventually I lost interest. The only thing I remember from high school was the story of how Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden and a parable about seeds. I didn't pursue religion, but I was convinced that there was some supernatural deity out there, so I characterized myself as agnostic. On the day that I moved into the dorms, I met a very friendly Christian girl. We ended up taking the same class at the end of my freshman year, and she introduced me to a group of seven girls with whom I'd live for the next two years of college, and they all happen to be Christian. Um, Did you say seven <laughs> girls? Yes. Wow. Um, and we didn't have any conflicts, so that was really wow. amazing. <laughs> miracle. God does miracles. <laughs> right. Um, so although I didn't go to church or participate in any of their fellowship activities, I had a very positive view of Christians through my interactions with them. And when I first graduated college, one of the women I worked with was also Christian. And during the four years we worked together, I found her to be a fantastic mentor, both at work and in life problems. I admired her kindness, patience, and overflowing graciousness, and I aimed to be more like her. She didn't ask 
if I wanted to go to church or learn more about Christianity, but she did reaffirm my positive view of Christians. Then one afternoon in October 2014, a cousin of mine, Jess, actually, messaged me excitedly to ask if I had just accepted a job position. I was very shocked that she knew, especially since I hadn't even told my dad yet, and even more so, this was very likely the first actual conversation I'd had with her. So it turned out that her best friend worked at my new workplace and had asked her about me. My cousin invited me to badminton and mentioned that two of my soon-to-be co-workers attended GBF with her. And at the time, I had only thought, wow, what a small world. Who knew I'd be asking about um, heaven and hell in a few months' time? And about a year later, in, I visited GCM with my coworker and cousin when the Bible study session started for the new year. Um, my coworker excited me, excitedly told me that the first topic would be on creation, and that was great timing. I had just finished reading John and had wanted to know what Derek had to say about creation and evolution. By the way, I'm a biochemist, so this was definitely something I was interested in. Um, although Derek's lesson at the time was intriguing, I wasn't convinced that it was the truth. Nonetheless, despite my initial misgivings and hesitation to accept what was being taught at GCM, I continued to go to the weekly Bible study session, and Derek covered um, an overview of worldviews of today and Genesis 1-3. And in parallel, I was meeting up with my cousin and coworker to discuss my many concerns, misgivings, and questions about the Bible, thanks to the scientist in me that told me to doubt everything. And later, I found that I actually had lost interest and faith in both the theory of evolution and the Big Bang Theory because I had subconsciously started to accept and believe the words written in the Bible instead. And by December 2015, I could confidently say that Christ had lived amongst humans as both man and God, that he had lived a perfect life and died on the cross to be the sacrifice to bear the divine wrath, uh, divine wrath of God the Father for all of humanity's sins, past, present, and future, and that he was resurre- resurrected three days later after um, three days after his crucifixion and death before he ascended to heaven. I had heard and read enough to believe all of this, but I still didn't have saving faith. Something was still missing, and I was craving something more, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted or where to start my search. And suddenly, church popped into my head. So I casually slipped that I'd like to visit GBF sometime into a conversation with my co- cousin and coworker. And of course, they were very excited, but my visit to church was actually delayed by an out-of-state visit with family. And while visiting my extended family, guilt invaded my thoughts. All of these relatives would eventually die and suffer for all eternity in hell, but I would be saved. I didn't understand why I should be saved when I deserved the exact same fate as them. I should also suffer for all of my sins. And I should have recognized that I felt guilty because I kept thinking about myself when I should have been thinking more about my Savior. I had been warned about the dangers of being too introspective and was told more than once what a generous, gracious, and free gift I was being offered if only I would choose to accept it. And I did have and will continue to sin, but Christ died on the cross so that I could be seen as sinless, as righteous before the Father. I didn't have to do anything because Christ's actions alone justified me. And so after shaking off the feeling of guilt, I made my first visit to GBF last Feb- or this Feb- February. And similar to GCM lessons, the Lord graciously timed it so that Sunday school lessons and main service sermons addressed questions that I had. Every time Pastor Cliff or Derek mentioned a topic I had recently covered with my cousin and coworker, we would exchange knowing glances and smiles. And these and past evidences of God's pursuit of me amazed and motivated me to figure out what was really keeping me from calling him my Lord and Savior. And while wrapping up some notes at work one late afternoon, the final puzzle piece slid into place. 
I was writing up results for an experiment I had done when I realized that I could let go of the one thing that I had always wanted if that was God's will for me. And the moment that I thought that, I found myself grinning from ear to ear. I was even more pleased when at my next meeting with my cousin and coworker, I discovered that I had been saved without even knowing it. I didn't realize it at the time because I didn't quite understand what it meant to take up one's own cross. For me, it was easy to acknowledge that I'm sinful because I know the sins I've committed. Believing that I should be saved was a bit more difficult because of my sins and, of course, those feelings of guilt. And taking up my cross, letting go of all the things that I valued to prioritize Christ in my life was more difficult than I had anticipated. Reading and oftentimes rereading the Bible, going to GCM, attending Sunday school and church, listening to Christian music, and most importantly, having found two disciples who patiently explained and re-explained concepts to me have been crucial for me to find the one thing that I was missing all this time, trust in God. God is good and takes care of his children. Trials are the constant reminders to trust, look towards, and seek him. And blessings are the constant reminders to be thankful to him and to continue living in ways that would please him. I trust that he will provide everything I need to live in Christ. And I'm getting baptized today to show that I'm choosing a life of following Christ. Thanks for listening. Uh, Just a comment um, about Jennifer. It was wonderful hearing her story. Uh, So incredibly blessed. She was was raised a Buddhist and then became at one point an agnostic. And then was studying biochemistry and became a committed evolutionist. And what changed her? Well, it was hearing, in her testimony, reading the Gospel of John, learning about who Jesus is, hearing the simple Gospel, and then GCM, hearing the Word of God, uh, as Derek taught it, out of the book of Genesis. And the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very soul of a person, enabling them to be changed by God. And so that's the wonderful story of Jennifer. Uh, Next we have Joanna. As Joanna's coming up here, I went and did a retreat um, in January. Some of you may remember uh, up north, I think Derek preached while I was gone, and uh, it was to college kids. I don't know if they're kids anyway. Uh, she's graduated from college. Uh, there's about 80 of them. And to my surprise, there was a contingent of five GBF people that came up. One I knew was coming, but four that I had no idea, and it was Four of our young girls uh, that came up and surprised me. They were there for the retreat. It was uh, totally exciting. And Joanna was one of them. And I didn't really know her at all. Uh, so you go to our church? Really? GBF? Oh, okay. I better pay attention better. Anyway, so we got to spend two days together at the conference. And we'd have meals together. And we were blessed at one of the meals where we got the extended version of Joanna's testimony, which was an hour and ten minutes long. And we're not going to do that today. Uh, she's going to give us the wonderful abridged version. So this is Joanna. Uh, I grew up in China as the only child uh, in an atheist family, and I focused on getting good grades. Um, ever since 12, um, I consistently questioned the meaning of life and frequently fell into depression. Being very successful academically didn't make me feel content or happy with life. I was scared of what might come after I die. Um, the prevalent life philosophy in China of working hard to achieve wealth and fame sounds very self-serving to me. The dissatisfaction of not knowing what I should live for compelled me to com- apply to college in the United States for a change of environment. My first semester at UC Berkeley in the year 2011 actually described my arrogance about my past academic performance. 
um, I couldn't understand lectures uh, and had trouble asking questions in office hours because I didn't know English. The only friends I made that year were Christians um, who graciously took their time to help me understand the most basic concepts in class and answer my questions about life in general, such as how to use those American commercial washing machines in the dorms or where to get cheap grocery. At the end of my uh, first semester, I became good friends with a Christian girl. Out of curiosity, I asked her about her faith. She briefly shared the gospel with me and asked me to join the fundamental faith class at her church, Grace Point, to know, uh, to know more about theology. Um, through that class, I heard the gospel but didn't find it very convincing as it contradicts what I was taught in China. However, the faithful God consistently placed God, uh, godly Christian girls in my life. They witnessed to me their loving kindness and um, caring character to strangers like me. It's more than apparent to me that they're different from this world. During a winter break, a girl opened her apartment to me when I didn't have a place to live, as my lease at my new apartment started late. Throughout that winter break, she went through the Gospel of John with me. The Gospel of John struck me as no other book has in my life. The gospel claimed that the word was God, John 1, 1, and in him was life, John 1, 4. When Jesus talked to Samaritan woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life, John 4, 13 to 14. It was a very accurate de uh, depiction of my spiritual state. I worship success, uh, affections, or acknowledgments from others. My heart was always thirsty and restless. Um, me, myself, was my Lord, not God. I sinned against God by suppressing the knowledge of him in my heart. Romans 1, I ignored him. Um, Jesus died sinless and blameless to wash away my sins for me, to reunite with God in heaven. At that time, uh, I placed my faith in God, early 2013. After I accepted Christ... I held less of a complaining heart of what I didn't have. I became more content and thankful to God for everything that I have in life. God has given me the Holy Spirit to pursue the things above rather than worrying about what comes tomorrow. Uh, God has graciously shown me many, many times, even in my short walk with him the past three years, that uh, his law is good and his will perfect. I only need the childlike faith uh, to trust in his sovereignty and obey his word. Amen. Thank you, Joanna. Just another amazing story. And my question is, how do you witness to a Buddhist atheist evolutionist? And how do you witness to a Chinese atheist with depression? The answer is the same. It's the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And both their testimonies have the impact of the gospel of John. That's how John's gospel ends. I wrote this book so that people might come to know who Jesus is that they might have eternal life. That is the power of God's word and his gospel. Coupled with, every one of these stories talks about the importance of loving Christians who befriend them and encourage them and witness to them and pray for them. So that's awesome. Uh, so right now it's my privilege to introduce Austin Thompson. or He's the youth guy, we call him, and the music guy. And He's a wonderful brother. He's been a blessing to our church. Been here, is it going on three years now? Unbelievable, three years. And so he's ministering at our church in the areas of uh, 
music and especially our youth, 6th grade to 12th grade, uh, and as well as many other things. And it's just been an absolute blessing as, as a dad who has youth, uh, two high school teenage boys, uh, I am incredibly blessed by anybody God sends my way to make a positive influence to complement what my wife and I are doing to raise them in the faith, to disciple them, to pray for them, to be examples to them. And that's what Austin has done here at this church. been a blessing to so many families and parents and uh, has had tremendous impact on many of these youth. And, and the three boys being baptized today are people that Austin has spent an incredible amount of time with and invested in their lives. So he has the privilege of... Uh, having them share their testimonies with you. And also he's going to baptize these guys. Wow, this is so exciting. Oh, man, I, I'm sorry. I just, I was thinking about this. And, uh, man, what a, what a blessed day. Is it not? It's just a blessed day. Uh, I want to read from Psalm 107, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Uh, and today we get to see testimonies of that and professions of that faith as we go and uh, baptize them. So first I want to call up Vance. Come on up. Uh, Vance I started working with probably about a year ago. He came to a youth event. Uh, and it has been a privilege to work with him. And uh, we've had many conversations and uh, but with that, I want to turn it over to him, and he's going to read his testimony for you today. Last year, I was just an ordinary boy. I did not grow up in a family of believers. However, I grew up in a very supportive environment. I had a very good supportive system. This included my family and my friends. These people meant the world to me, and I would spend time with them whenever I could. We fought sometimes, but overall, I had a really good relationship with them. My family played a huge part of my life, and my family did many great things for me. They encouraged me to do the best I can in school. They would take me on uh, these big road trips to help me see the world, and they would sit down with me whenever I was feeling sad and whenever I had to talk about something. They were a very caring family. My friends were also a great part of my life. They supported me just like my family and did lots of the same things. Despite these facts, I, I cared about them. However, I took a lot of these good acts for granted. Some of the stuff I didn't really thank them for. I thanked them sometimes, but a lot of times I didn't. This made me very, very selfish in a way. I never thought through what it was like for the other people who supported me, because they would work really, really hard to support me. This started to change after a friend of mine took me to my first youth group. It was at the local golf land in Sunnyvale. This was about a year on a Saturday afternoon. I was not good at miniature golf. Like, I was horrible at miniature golf. Horrible. Horrible. I missed, like, 100 times in the world. It wasn't really fun at first, and I got so frustrated. However, I realized how good natured these new friends were. I met the wonderful group of Tim, Mitch, Austin. David wasn't there, but that's going to be a different story. However, these people didn't like judge me or criticize how I played. I was amazed. These people, like, I was really amazed. 
However, fast forward. After we were done with our game, we went to In-N-Out, grabbed some dinner, and then headed home. Austin, shout out to him, started to ask me what a gospel was. I was really confused. I did not know what the real meaning of the gospel was. I said it was just a genre of music that gets me dancing. Austin was like, no. I asked him what it really was. I was given this answer that that our that the one and only Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. I knew what it meant, but I didn't take it seriously. Mud was like, that's a good story. Should be like Lord of the Rings. Little did I know that it was the truth. However, a new chapter in my life was about to begin. Austin then invited me to his church, the wonderful Grace Bible Fellowship. Shortly after that deep moment with Austin in the ride home, on our way home, I started going to these wonderful services here at GBF. Over here, I met the wonderful David Tong, who, um, who does music here, who's a musician. One day after service, I introduced myself to David. It, was, it, w- it went really well, and throughout that year, we got to know each other really better. I learned about how David struggled with a lot of the same things that I have been struggling with. It was school. We struggled in the same similar subjects. During that time of the year, I did not get good grades in school, and um, David could relate to that, which I really thank him for doing that. Whenever and as time progressed, I started to seek God's word more. I would call um, David and Austin for advice, and they were able when they were to pick up the phone and tell me the wonderful things that Jesus did and God did for my life. However, the problem was that I did not fully believe that these were, in fact, real events. I took them as just stories that had good morale. Like I said, Lord of the Rings. I just could not believe. However, one service, it started to change me, and I started to regret not being a Christian. We had communion, and I could not participate because I was not a Christian. (coughs) Excuse me. I felt very left out as we had more communions, and I was the only one who sat in church passing the wine and bread that was drank in honor of our one and only Lord, Jesus Christ. I wanted to participate in all these activities and honor the Lord. But it was hard for me to commit my life to Christ because despite the hard work my family did to help me, they were not, they were not believers in Christ. And becoming a Christian, I'd have to leave them behind. It's, it's really sad. But, However, I also told that Heaven also awaits me. And being with God is the best, better than being with anyone. All I had to do was join the newly born, was to confess with my mouth that Jesus is our only Lord and he died on the cross for our sins. Wow. So one day me and Austin met up. Um, I expressed this when, like, we had a great time studying the Bible. But as as we were having a great time studying the Bible, my heart started to hurt. Like, it was, it was really painful. And my heart was painful because the Holy Spirit was taking action and reminding me to repent for all of the sins I've done, lied to people, cursed to people, stolen from people, all those sins. I start to regret. And I asked Austin, when can I get uh, saved? He was like, you can get saved any time. So I finally did it. 
I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for our sins, suddenly I felt very forgiven. The pain I felt was a <coughs> Holy Spirit guiding me to repentance. From that moment on, the Bible started to make sense to me and I started to have a joy for new life. I stopped taking the help that I was getting for granted. God has done a lot for me all this time, and I never really understood it, which I regretted doing it. However, all that, matter, all that matters is that I'm saved, and I have my faith in Jesus Christ. I am not perfect, and I will never be, and I will still continue to make mistakes throughout all my life. But the feeling that I'm forgiven and that Jesus died on the cross for a sense is an awesome feeling. Lastly, i like to thank GBF and ask anyone in GBF to pray for my family so they can so they can live in live in eternity with me in heaven god bless um, thank you vance uh it, like i said it's been a a real privilege uh working with vance and answering his questions and um just a a little little side note um vance used to call and he would ask a question um and then he would be ready to go and and i'd say vance you know that um, you still need to be saved. And he's like, okay, I got to go now. Um, and, uh, so I, we, we worked through the gospel many times. And, uh, what was cool was seeing the, the final conviction when we were in the car together and his recognition that, uh, he knew at that moment that he needed a savior. And it was, uh, it was really a, just a great blessing and a, a privilege to witness. Uh, cool. Next, I'm going to call up, uh, Manfred. Manfred, why don't you come on up? Uh, so I've been working with Manfred uh, probably for about two years-ish, two, two and a half years. Uh, and it's been a great time, and uh, we've had some really great youth groups together, and uh, he is a very tenacious board game player, so watch out. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just going to ask um, you a quick question. Uh, why do you want to get baptized? Because it's commanded by God. Cool. Uh, that's a great answer. And then uh, I'm going to let him uh, read his testimony. He has a very short testimony that he's going to read. Good morning. Um, when I was in middle school, I began to ask more questions about God. Um, I learned about the Reformation when Martin Luther rediscovered that salvation was by grace alone through faith in Jesus as written in the word of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And the gift of God was that Jesus died for the punishment of our sins. First uh, John 2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus Christ's good works are counted to us. Uh, Romans 5, 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If it was that simple, then I could do it in middle school. So I confessed my sins and repented and believed that Jesus rose from the grave. And I did it multiple times to make sure I was being sincere. And my dad is my witness to that. Um, God has helped me in my life by convicting me when I commit sins. And he's used the people in my life, like my youth leaders and my parents, to teach me more about the word of God. 
Um, I wasn't sure about being baptized because I haven't overcome most of my sins, and it feels like I had to do that in order to prove I was a Christian. But I was ignoring the fact that all sins are forgiven by God, and the Holy Spirit is there to help me overcome my sin over time. And Austin reminded me that even though Christians struggle with indwelling sin after accepting Christ, the only requirement for a baptism is faith in Christ. So the reminder that I didn't have to be perfect in order to be baptized gave me the confidence to obey Christ's command to be baptized today. Thank you. Thank you, Manfred. Cool, yeah. And then uh, lastly, I'm going to call up Rustin McManus. Um, Wow. I don't even know where to begin with this guy. Uh, When I moved in, he was probably about this tall. Um, and now he's taller than I am. Go figure. Uh, and actually when I moved here, I didn't have very many friends and I can say confidently that, um, probably the first year and a half that I lived in the, in, in this area, uh, Rustin's actually my closest and dearest friend. Um, and we used to go to Jamba Juice every Wednesday morning cause he had late start for school and, uh, so many other countless uh, times and so I, I'm really grateful for his friendship and being able to walk together uh, uh, this this just this life and and to be able to learn more about the word together uh, and so Rustin I read his testimony it was great but he uh, uh, I'm just going to ask him some questions um, and so he's not going to read the whole thing but I'll ask you first why do you want to get baptized um, I also want to get baptized because it's a commandment from God that's a good answer. Uh, and uh, do you believe that Jesus is eternal, uncreated God? Yes. Yeah, short answer. That was good. Um, uh, about when did you get saved? Um, I got saved when I was in kindergarten, and I was going to Awana at the time. And um, I heard a message on the gospel from one of the teachers there, and that is when I first really understood the gospel, and I prayed to God afterwards and accepted Christ as my Savior. Good. That's great. And uh, and how is God working in your life today? How does he help you? Uh, give us, like, an example or, or two. Okay. Uh, well, I pray to God all the time, and uh, whenever I'm stressed from school or sports or whatever it is, um, I just pray for strength and wisdom and guidance, and he answers those prayers. Great. And uh, another thing, too, is uh, I think another good sign uh, before baptism is even a desire to get baptized in obedience uh, of the commandment. And so, Rustin, how long about have you said that you uh, or how long, tell us, uh, have you been having a desire to be baptized after you were saved? Well, I've had the desire for quite a few years now, maybe three or four years, but now I'm finally just getting to it. So, yeah. All right. Great. Uh, and so, uh, why don't you head on off and we're gonna, we're gonna dunk him just a little bit here. Yeah, it's so exciting. Oh man. I feel like I could just dance with joy, but I will spare you all that. Um, and so why don't you, uh, go ahead and bow with me in a word of prayer as our music team comes up. Um, gracious Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for today. God, we're thankful for the truth that you are still saving sinners. God, and what an incredible miracle that is, taking them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. God, we're so grateful. Uh, Those of us here, Lord, who trust and believe in you are uh, a body being fit and sanctified for heaven. 
And Lord, do we await that day with just great anxiety. And in the meantime, Lord, would you give us the strength uh, to live for Christ? And uh, we thank you for this time and pray that you would bless us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was a wonderful testimony, Jennifer, and based on your testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Joanna, based on your testimony and faith, and our Lord Jesus Christ, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, Vance, that's a great testimony. <laughs> we're, we're all grateful. Uh, but it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Manfred, based on your testimony, it's my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're still tall. Uh, based on uh, based on your testimony, Rustin, it is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I have the privilege to close us in a brief prayer, um, and then I'll dismiss you. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for this day. Uh, we're grateful. Uh, we pray that the redeemed of the Lord would say so and continue to say so, Lord, and that you would encourage us all. Uh, to be messengers of your gospel, to be witnesses for your kingdom, Lord, that we would speak the gospel and proclaim your good news to all men. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Go and have a blessed week, and we uh, please be our guest at the fellowship meal. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 Six three zero 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 nine.